0: Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and this week's episode is the final part of my series on edible gardens. I'll be talking about sunflowers, the three sisters method of planting and pasture plants and why they might be a good addition to your homestead or farm. A few homestead updates just to get started. Um, If you follow me on Instagram, you might have seen that last Saturday, I was at a beekeeping conference and workshop. And I intend to actually do a full rundown about how that went for my next episode. And kind of on the same vein, I have been posting some videos. Um, We had some warm weather and my hives were active and I was able to actually go in not do a full inspection I didn't crack the brood box but I did go in and look at the candy boards and get a feel for how the clusters were doing and if you follow me on Instagram you know that things have changed and what I thought was my strongest hive is now actually my weakest and I don't know if it's going to make it but fingers crossed and again I'm going to go into this in detail sort of what I saw what I did in response and so on for next uh the next episode So something I actually did want to talk about um, in relation to my homestead is chickens and um, a recent comment from a recipient of some of my eggs led me to want to discuss how um, thin eggshells can happen and why you might have thin eggshells and whether this can be a sign of uh, a nutritional deficiency or if it's a normal process. So If all you've ever had is grocery store eggs, you might be surprised and even disappointed the first time you encounter a thin-shelled egg from your backyard flock. Now, the first thought with thin shells is that it must be a lack of calcium. And that is the place to start. Every feed that I've ever found will have calcium listed as a supplement and it will give a percentage. But it's also recommended that you add additional calcium supplements to your feed and the easiest method for this is adding ground up oyster shells which you've probably seen at the feed store in big bags you can buy like absolutely ginormous bulk bags of this it's kind of pre-ground it's almost the same size as the grit that you buy for your chickens and you can either add it to the feed or you can just put it in a great big bowl for them and let them eat it whenever they feel like it and chickens will eat oyster shells as needed. Now, I don't have them pre-feed on oyster shells because I don't know if it's just my setup or how my girls are, but they basically manage to get a ton of poop and dirt into no matter what kind of bowl I use for the calcium. And they end up wasting about 90% of it. And it's just too expensive for me to like let them waste a supplement like that. So what I do is I mix it into their feed instead so that as they're eating their pellets or their crumble, they're also ingesting additional calcium. Now, something else that I do is I take any eggshells that after I've eaten, like particularly boiled eggs, and I dry them and then I crunch them down into small pieces and I put that back in the feed as well. You know, use what you have, right? So we try and be sustainable, generally speaking, as homesteaders. And this is a great way to do it by saving our eggshells. Now if you have a severe lack of calcium that you're noticing in your flock you can also get liquid calcium. This is more expensive. uh, Some forms of it can be added to their water and other forms you need to give to them directly and you need to be careful of the dosage but that's something you can look into. Now if it's not an issue of calcium or at least a calcium deficiency deficiency why might you see thin eggshells? Well some of it is the time of year. So as we've discussed quite a lot because of the seasons changing as your hens go into their molt they will stop laying eggs and then through the winter because the days are so short and they rely on that sunshine to give them impetus and uh, the trigger to be reproductively active then everything kind of shuts down reproductively now when the days start to lengthen again as we've slowly been seeing here in northeast ohio things start to kick back into gear and your girls are gonna start laying again. Now, as things kind of get moving, it's not uncommon to find that eggshells might be thin or you get weirdly shaped eggs or maybe you get some huge eggs with double yolks in them or especially small eggs, which we call fairy eggs. You might even find that some eggs have really, really thick eggshells or kind of bizarre deposits on the eggshells where some parts are thicker than others. And very occasionally you might even find that your hens pass what I call a rubber egg, which is basically a normal egg, so a healthy yolk and then the whites around it, but it's just bound by the membrane, there's no shell at all. And this isn't really unusual as their reproductive systems are coming back online. But having said that, if you get a lot of these rubber eggs, that could be a symptom of a bigger issue, maybe a severe deficiency of some kind of nutrient or some other kind of reproductive disorder. So you might wanna speak to a vet or grab your chicken health handbook and flip through it. Now another issue that you, with thin eggshells, or I should say another course, is how old are your chickens? And this is something that people tend to forget. So production hens, the ones who are making the eggs that get sold at the store, They're usually culled as they come into their first molt which is between the ages of 12 and 16 months of age. This basically means that all of those eggs that come from them occur during their peak reproductive months. Basically when they're young they're much more healthy and the eggs tend to be more consistent because of this. Production hens also have very heavily supplemented Feed with things like calcium and D3. Um, And it's so heavily supplemented that it probably wouldn't be safe longer term. But I do need to do a little bit more digging about that because, unsurprisingly, there's not a huge amount of transparency around factory farming. And it's important to keep in mind that if you're buying from your local Amish communities, which is we have a lot of Amish and Mennonites here in Ohio, so it's common to see people buying eggs from the Amish communities, because they believe that those hens are treated better, but that's not always the case. If you're buying from your local Amish communities and selling eggs is one of their primary methods of making money, then they're very likely culling their hens young as well, just like the production farmers, because they get a bigger bang for their buck if they're always getting consistent egg laying from the young hens, which they can just keep on raising themselves. And I realize that many have this idyllic view of the Amish and how they raise their animals. But the fact of the matter is that the Amish often treat their animals very poorly. You can look into puppy mills. Um, Amish are some of the biggest owners and producers of puppy mill puppies in this part of the country. You can look at how they treat their horses. And you can look at how they raise their chickens. And most of it is not what I would call humane. But because people believe that it's some kind of idyllic, natural, pasture-raised, fed fresh food kind of environment for the chickens, they think that the eggs that they get from Amish communities are representative of eggs they would get from someone who keeps chickens in their backyard. And that's not always the case. Of course, I'm not saying that all Amish communities are the same. I'm sure there are some that are raised beautiful, healthy, very well taken care of birds. But generally speaking, the idea that all Amish treat their animals well is not the case. So all this is basically to say thin shells happen. Now if you're selling your eggs in your local community you likely already know that younger hens tend to make better eggs and you might also be culling your girls at younger ages and there's nothing wrong with that. If you're more of a pet chicken keeper like myself then you keep your girls well into their dotage, you spoil them rotten and you just kind of accept whatever egg gifts they give you and just appreciate the fact that you have these old girls and they're still producing for you. And Really, what led me to bringing up this point is that if you're given free eggs from someone like myself it's really impolite to lecture me on appropriate calcium supplement supplementation without you know maybe opening the conversation by asking how I raise my chickens and how old they are and I'm honestly, I'm not sure anything chaps my ass quite as much as being lectured about something that I already know about and that I gave you for free. (laughs) So if I sound salty AF, I kind of am. And I do actually know that the person um, who led to this (laughs) meant it in the best possible way. But I, I really have a hard time When people go straight to telling me what I'm doing wrong without finding out all the facts. And the fact is that in chicken years, my girls are old. And I also have some special needs girls. And I never say that my eggs are perfect, I don't say that they're representative of what you get at the grocery store. And sometimes, I have weird eggs and sometimes the the shells are thin, particularly now because they're coming back into their regular schedule. But one thing I can tell you is that all of my eggs are delicious and all of my girls are raised in the best conditions that I am able to give them, that they are spoiled rotten, that they get calcium supplements, that they get special treats, and they are very, very well loved. So that said, getting off my soapbox for just a second, um, just another reminder that um, I do promise to get into everything that's been going on with my bees recently, or at least everything that I learned that's been going on with my bees recently, and the beekeeping conference in my next episode. But This is my part three of my three-part series on edible gardens, and I'm going to be covering sunflowers, the three sisters method of planting and pasture plants. And just like with the other two parts of this series, I had so much fun learning about all this. Um, There was so much more new information I came across. I got kind of excited by what I read about how some of these plants interact and what they can do for our ecosystems, so hopefully you'll will enjoy this as well. So first up is sunflowers, which I'm sure most of us know, they're absolutely beautiful. They make wonderful cut plants. They're great for getting their seeds, which you can feed to your chickens and to wild birds and eat yourself. And they're also good in the garden because they attract pollinators and they also provide shade for smaller plants that you might plant around them. So for sunflowers, you can start your seeds indoors or you can directly sow them. They prefer full sun to partial shade. It seems like six plus hours of sun is recommended for them to thrive. They reach heights between 36 to 72 inches, and the harvest period is late summer to early fall. In terms of spacing these plants, it varies between about six inches as a kind of bare minimum up to 24 inches, depending on the variety of sunflower, days until blooming are about 55 to 110 days. Sunflowers are moderately deer resistant so you might need to provide some protection. There are short or dwarf varieties which actually work surprisingly well in container gardens so if that's what you're going to be doing moving forward sunflowers aren't out of your reach you can grow them in containers. Now there's two primary varieties of sunflowers one is a single stem variety which just has the one large flowering head and might be the one that most people are familiar with and then you have branching varieties which have multiple flowering heads. As I said before all sunflowers are pollinator friendly. Now in terms of the seeds and having success with them You wanna cover them with about half an inch of soil when you plant because they need the darkness to sprout. Seeds will start to emerge within three to five days and a soil temperature between 75 to 85 degrees is best. You might be shocked at how quickly they can grow and you wanna transplant each seedling when the sprout is about three to five inches tall, which is on average about two to three weeks after sowing. In terms of succeeding with sunflowers, water them at transplanting time and then twice more within the first 10 days, assuming you haven't had any rain. uh, Providing support is recommended. Um, It's pretty easy for that young stem to topple over in wind or if knocked against by a deer and it can even snap. So consider providing support to help keep that stem nice and strong. For single stem varieties, the one that just has that one big flower, you wanna leave a minimum space of about six inches between the plants. And for the branching varieties, you wanna allow 12 to 24 inches of space between plants because you don't want the flowers to become overcrowded together. In terms of harvesting, you can cut the flowers when the blooms are beginning to open because they continue to open inside. Now single stem flowers last approximately 10 to 14 days if given sufficient water after being cut and branching stem flowers last about five to seven days. You need to wait until the uh, sunflower has finished blooming on the stem so that it can go to seed before you harvest the seeds. Now some varieties to consider um, I have a couple that I found, but there's actually, there's a really shocking amount of different sunflowers out there. So definitely have a look through your seed catalogs. But the ones I chose to highlight today, um, there's one called the teddy bear, which is of dwarf variety. It grows to about 24 inches in containers and 36 inches in the ground. Next I chose the Moulin Rouge which is also known as the chocolate sunflower because it has rich kind of red orange almost chocolatey colored petals and it produces black oil sunflower seeds which you might recognize as being beloved of all birds and is in most wild bird seed mixes. You could also go with the starburst lemon aura. This is a branching variety with very attractive lemon yellow blooms kind of almost frilly petals it's really quite striking. And then finally the woodland sunflower which I wanted to highlight because it is suited to shady locations so if you have an area where you really want to grow sunflowers but it doesn't have quite as much sun as is optimal for other varieties then the woodland sunflower might be for you. Now something that I wasn't aware of but I came across in my reading is that there are actually pollenless varieties of sunflowers and they are pollenless and even nectarless which means they're pretty much useless for pollinators and might not be what you want to plant if attracting pollinators is part of the appeal of sunflowers for you. That said, these varieties were mainly... Uh, cultivated because they last longer as a cut flower so if you are looking to establish a cut flower garden basically flowers that you are cutting to bring into the house to make bouquets and vases and such I should say bouquets to put in vases um, then this might be for you and in terms of identifying them look for varieties which have pro-cut or sun rich in their name. These are the pollenless and nectarless varieties which would be great addition to a cut flower garden. Now in terms of pollinators what can you expect? Well the wonderful thing about sunflowers is that they actually attract a very diverse amount of pollinators. So you can expect to see all kinds of bees, wasps, flies, butterflies, and even pollen feeding soldier beetles. The sugar concentration in the nectar of sunflowers is about 31 to 49% on average. Something that I found super charming is that there is a sunflower leaf cutter bee that will visit the flowers, but might also use the dead hollow stems as nesting sites. So you might want to consider leaving your stems out in your garden. The sunflower is also a host plant for caterpillars of the silvery checker spot and bordered patch butterflies. So, in terms of helping your local pollinators, this is a really great flower to consider. So, next up, I'm going to talk about the Three Sisters method of planting. Now some of you might be aware of this already, it's actually kind of news to me, I think I've mentioned before that I started listening to a newer podcast called the Anywhere Podcast and they talked a little bit about this and it really piqued my interest and I knew that I wanted to look into it as an option for my own garden and then once I started digging into it a little bit more I wanted to share that information with all of you. So the three sisters method is basically a way of growing corn, beans and squash together. So it's a form of companion planting, which basically means that all these three plants benefit the others in some way. The Three Sisters method also happens to be a traditional Native American method of gardening, and it actually originated with the Haudenosaunee tribe, which is also known as the Iroquois people, and they live in the Great Lakes region of Northeast America and Canada. This method of companion planting is associated with a number of legends about three sisters who learn to overcome their differences by seeing how their disparate skills help them function effectively as a group. So for instance, a Cherokee legend speaks of three women who helped each other stay fed, hydrated and strong on the Trail of Tears. Another legend, which I sadly couldn't find which tribe it originated from, but this legend talks about three sisters who always bickered driving their mother up the wall. So one day, Mums had enough and she took three eggs and she cooked them in three different ways before giving them to her daughters. And as she fed her daughters, she pointed out that although the cooking method changed the texture of the egg, the egg itself was the same and each one was uniquely delicious. And this made the sisters see themselves in a new light. There are a ton of legends associated with the three sisters and I really recommend doing a Google search and giving them a read because they're wonderful and beautiful and they give a really appealing insight into a number of Native American traditions and cultures and storytelling. So for this section... Um, I want to give a huge thanks to Melissa Cruz Peoples, who is the author of an article entitled entitled How to Grow the Three Sisters, which I found on the nativeseeds.org website. And I will link to that in my um, website, which you can find in the episode description. So most of the information that I'm about to share is from this article. It's wonderful, it covers the history of this companion planting method, why these particular plants were and still are so important in Native American communities, as well as like practical instructions on how to go about growing them. So as I said, the three sisters, it's corn, beans, and squash. And as Melissa Cruz Peoples states in her article, When planted together, the three sisters work together to help one another thrive and survive. Well, how? How do they do this? And again, the author says, these three crops complement each other in the garden as well as nutritionally. And that really just sums it up perfectly in a nutshell. But to give you a little bit more of an idea, basically the beans, they climb the tall corn stalks which helps them avoid being outcompeted by the sprawling squash plants. The beans also provide nitrogen to the soil. So something I never knew before is that on beans' roots is Rhizobia, which is a nitrogen-fixing bacteria. And this allows the beans to basically pull nitrogen from the air and distribute it into the soil for the other plants around it to benefit from. Meanwhile, the large leaves of the squash plants provide shade over the ground, keeping it moist. So traditionally, all three plant seeds were planted in large elevated mounds that assist with drainage, but there are many different configurations one can use in a Three Sisters garden. You can even plant them in separate fields, allowing some overlap where each field meets. Here are a few key considerations. The three sisters are warm season plants they do not tolerate frost you want to sow the seeds directly when night temperatures are consistently above 50 to about 55 degrees fahrenheit for southwest states it's important to note that corn does not tolerate high heat and low humidity so consider planting either before april 15th to harvest before the dry season Or plant in mid to late July for a full harvest. You want to plant in the order of corn first, then beans, then squash. The corn goes first because you need the height of the stems to support the bean tendrils. Then you have the beans which go in about two to three weeks after the corn which allows it to get some of that height. Squash is best planted one week after the beans have emerged because again, You don't want those squash leaves to get so big shadow over the beans and they don't get enough sun so when you're organizing your planting you're considering what kind of the configuration you want for your plants the first thing you have to look at is your space will each plant have enough room to grow optimally and then you want to consider pollination So beans self-pollinate, which means you can have just one plant if you need to. If you don't have the space, that's fine. One bean plant, that's all you need. Squash, however, needs insects. So several plants will be needed so that the insects can come in and help with that cross-pollination corn is wind pollinated so the more plants the better and it seems like 10 to 20 is what's recommended as a minimum but if you can put more in that is going to help you now in terms of what varieties you could look at for corn look at all-purpose dent corn one example would be dia de san juan you could do a tall popcorn uh, a variety i found was called flor del rio You can do flint corn, but you want to avoid dwarf or short varieties. Now these are cultivated because they're good water savers, but you need the height of regular corn to support your bean plants. Now for beans, you're looking at basically any pole bean, you don't want a bush bean. So that means things like green beans, runner beans, wax beans, lima beans, and even beans that are great to be dried like pinto, navy and black turtle. For squash, you can go with any kind of winter squash. You can go with pumpkins. And I actually read that even watermelons and gourds will work just as well as regular squash. Now something fun that I came upon in my reading is that there are listed additional sisters one of which is the sunflower plant. Now the reason the sunflower is such a wonderful companion plant to a three sisters garden is that it attracts pollinators that benefit the corn and the squash and also it can provide additional shade during the heat of the day. So If you wanted to you can plant sunflowers around your three sisters garden and you know how to do that because we just discussed it. So the final section today is all about pasture plants. Now what are pasture plants? Why do we need them? Are they worth the work required if you have a small homestead or just a garden that you are growing vegetables in? And Are they just for farmers with large acreage? These were all things that I considered when I started looking into pasture plants. So in terms of why. Now pasture plants are obviously connected directly to grazing, placing them firmly in the interest of farmers. The kind of vegetation our livestock consumes during their lives directly affects their health and therefore the quality of their meat and or milk many of the plants I'm going to discuss today, they're nothing new to farmers who've probably been using them for generations. But it seems like pasture plants are increasingly the subject of further study as people begin to recognise just how beneficial they are both to our livestock and the larger ecosystem that surrounds our properties. I found a great article on the Green Publishing website and I will post that link on my Uh, blog which can be found in the episode description and this article shared excerpts from a book titled The Art of Science and Grazing by Sarah Flack and here are two key quotes from Sarah Flack that I think sum up the importance of good pasture plants for grazing. When done well, grazing management can improve animal well-being, ecological health and the financial sustainability of the farm. As pastures improve, plant density and diversity increase, which protects soil from erosion and compaction. There is also increased plant root growth and better cycling of nutrients through the soil. That, for me, just kind of sums it up. That's probably why anyone who has an interest in their land might be interested in learning more about pasture plants. Now, other benefits identified by Sarah Flack in her book include reduced reliance on supplement feed, i.e., grain, improved livestock health, increased levels of healthy nutrients in meat and milk, less exposure to pesticides and chemicals, improved environmental and ecosystem health, healthier soil, higher forage quality, less reseeding. And new market opportunities. If you're interested in the nitty gritty of grazing, there are many books and online articles that are going to delve very deep into this subject, including extremely complicated articles on soil chemical composition, which kind of made my eyes cross a little bit. But if you have any kind of hooved livestock or ungulates, then that might be of interest to you. And I definitely recommend going out, grabbing some books, doing a Google search and just sitting down and going through it and seeing if this is something that you need to know. In terms of why I'm interested in pasture plants, the answer is simple. It's all about the pollinators. Pasture plants provide nectar and pollen as well as nesting sites for numerous native and non-native pollinators that are essential to our environment and food growth. So while I was looking into the subject, I came across the University of Georgia's Honeybee Programme website, and again I'll link that on my blog, and they have some really great information on what they call bee pastures and how we can establish them. So the purpose of bee pastures is to improve bee nutrition and they've identified three types of forage areas which will do this. So the first one is single-year productive bee pastures. This is basically a pasture made up of annual clovers, wildflowers and ornamentals. They tend to bloom for one forage season, they require reseeding each year usually in November And they're easy to set up with inexpensive seed, simple ploughing schedule and just a little extra maintenance. The downsides however are that you might require considerable acreage if you're looking for full season coverage and these plants tend to be easily stressed by high heat such as found in southern states which can cause up to 10 weeks of forage dearth. The second one is a multi-year productive bee pasture. So this is tends to be made up of perennial blooming flowers, some woody vines and bushes. These plants either bloom lightly all season, lightly for a brief time or lavishly for a brief time. There is more work and advanced planning involved in this pasture for successional blooming. The benefit, however, is that these pastures tend to be versatile. The negative is that most herbaceous perennials that you will need for this are grown as seedlings and transplants. So you're looking at spending a lot more money up front. And then we have permanent productive bee pastures. These are made up of trees, bushes, and a few woody perennials. The plantings can last over 30 years. This is a long-term dependable source of pollens and nectars, but the productivity will vary year to year. There's no ploughing or weeding needed long term. And these are also best for fruit and vegetable growers who want a large wild bee population every year. The negative is that it is initially extremely expensive to establish. Um, There aren't very many of us who can go out and buy tens of trees to just plant. That is a big expense. But here's the good news. Bee pastures aren't just for people with large amounts of land. Pasture plants will grow well in hedgerows and between your garden beds, encouraging pollinator activity, bringing them to your edible gardens. So even just a few of the plants that I'm going to talk about today could benefit your homestead. Now, as I've mentioned before, one of my primary sources for this series on edible gardens has been the book 100 Plants to Feed the Bees by the Xerxes Society and they provided the bulk of my information on the following pasture plants. They also sum up the benefit of pasture plants at the beginning of the chapter by saying native to non-native bee pasture plants include good choice for farm pasture and tough sites. Such annual and perennial plants cover ground and improve soil health while yielding lush nectar flows. Now, the plants I'm going to discuss today are plants that I identified as being a little bit more accessible for those of us in the US, but it's not at all exhaustive. So if you are interested in this subject, you need to hit the books and there's a lot more plants that you could choose from. Um, I of course recommend picking up the aforementioned Xerxes Society book because it is wonderful it has beautiful pictures and just great information it also has a really clean and crisp layout which I really enjoy before I move on to the individual plants I just want to give a quick terminology note because it was new terminology for me and it might be for you So mentioned in the book is something called uh, green manure, like this plant is a good green manure plant. And I was like, it's a green poop plant. I didn't understand. So I looked it up. Thank you, Google. And trusty Google told me that basically a green manure plant is any plant that's plowed back into the soil to act as a fertilizer, which now that I've said it sounds kind of self-explanatory, but it was new for me. It might be new for you. So keep that in mind. The first plant I'm going to talk about is alfalfa. This is a honey plant. It requires full sun. Its bloom season is summer. It reaches a maximum height of three feet. The flower color is purple or yellow. It's an important fodder and forage legume. It depends on pollinators for seed production. There are perennial and annual varieties available alfalfa supports an abundance of diverse pollinators, it prefers well-drained soil, and nectar flows best following a wet spring, which is exactly what we have here in northeast Ohio most years. The average sugar concentration in nectar is 41 to 44 percent, and according to the Xerxes book, up to 300 pounds of honey per hive is possible when alfalfa fields are stocked with two hives per acre now something to keep in mind with alfalfa however is that the pollen it produces lacks the essential protein isoleucine which is bad news for honeybees if they're restricted to alfalfa as a primary forage so that's just something to keep in mind if you know of someone with an alfalfa farm and you're thinking about putting your hives there In terms of what variety is recommended um, it seems like you should be looking at something called the siberian yellow m falcata is the latin name this is cold tolerant drought resistant and it's also very good for tough sites so this makes it pretty versatile alfalfa is going to attract honeybees leafcutter bees and something called alkali bees which is a new one for me and it's also a host plant for caterpillars of a number of species of butterfly, including the Melissa blue, the orange sulfur, the clouded sulfur, the southern dog face and the eastern tail blue. It also is a host plant for beneficial predatory and parasitic insects and mites that function as biological pest control. So that's good news for your crops. Next, I have buckwheat. This is also a honey plant. It also likes full sun. It blooms in the summer and the flower color is white. Maximum height is about four foot and buckwheat honey is pungent, dark and with a strong molasses flavor. Now, buckwheat is not technically a grain. It is actually related to rhubarb, which definitely came as a shock to me. And it flowers prolifically in summer, which is part of why it's such a wonderful honey plant. It requires fertile, loose, moist soil and cool weather for maximum nectar flow. If any of the above are missing, then nectar production can decline by 50% or more. This means that honey crops that rely primarily on buckwheat are going to vary year by year. The average sugar sugar concentration in nectar is 7 to 48%. And the pollen protein is about 10%, which is below the minimum honeybee uh, need of 20%. So again, if you are placing hives on buckwheat farms, bear in mind that they're going to need access to additional plants to get the needed amount of protein from their pollen. In terms of what varieties of buckwheat you can use, there's a lot available and they're almost all great really for nectar production you want to avoid something called shatter resistant cultivars buckwheat will attract honeybees native bees butterflies wasps and beneficial predatory and parasitic insects on to clover now clover is something you are probably familiar with and you might already know that it makes for a wonderful honey plant It does well in full sun to partial shade and it blooms late spring through summer. The flower color is white, pink, and red. The maximum height is about one foot and the honey is light, mild in taste, and hugely popular. Clover is also an important fodder plant, cover crop, green manure, and it also fixes nitrogen. So this plant is a wonderful addition to your garden or your pasture. It's mostly intolerant of acidic soil and drought, so that's definitely something to consider. Many species of clover lead to over 200 pounds of surplus honey in optimal conditions. The average sugar concentration of nectar is 22 to 55 percent, and the pollen protein levels are high, up to 25 percent, depending on the species of clover and the location. There's a number of different varieties you can choose from and they're all excellent. Uh, You can plant different ones for the best pollinator benefit. So if you have the option, grab a couple of different varieties and plant them together. Some varieties that stood out in my reading were white Dutch clover, which is Trifolium repens in Latin, this was recommended because it tolerates mowing so it's a great option for lawns and orchards and I am going to look for this because this sounds like it might be a good solution for get, getting rid of parts of my lawn. There's also crimson clover, tea incarnatum, this makes a beautiful annual cover crop. There's ulse like clover, T. hybridum. This is an excellent perennial that grows well in cooler climates and tolerates wetter and more acidic soils. So if that sounds like where you live, this might be the clover for you. And then there's red clover, T. pretens, which is a short-lived perennial, but it has very deep nectaries. So this means that it might not be great for honeybees, but it's especially good for things like bumblebees and even hummingbirds. In general, clover is gonna attract all kinds of bees all kinds of butterflies and lots of different species of wasps it's also a host plant for a variety of um, butterfly caterpillars including the grey hair streak the greenish blue the shasta blue eastern tailed blue orange sulfur the clouded sulfur queen alexandra's sulfur and the southern dog face So, wow, that is a lot of different butterflies that you are supporting. And if you've been following the news about our pollinators, a number of butterfly species are declining. So it sounds like clover, that's a pretty good plant if you are very interested in supporting your native and local butterfly species. Next up, I have mustard, which you might be familiar with. This likes full sun. It blooms spring to summer, has a maximum height of six foot, which is actually a big surprise for me. I did not realise it could get so huge. The flower colour is yellow and most species are annuals and biennial. This provides valuable cover, forage, row and specialty crops. Now, Generally, it's considered a low quality honey plant, but the pollen is high in fat about 5% and protein around 25%. The average sugar concentration of the nectar is 50 to 51%, which kind of gave me pause because it said it's a low quality honey plant in my reading, but that it it seems to have a high sugar concentration. So my only assumption can be that it doesn't produce a huge amount of nectar. In terms of recommended varieties, the first thing you're going to want to do is consult your federal or state noxious weed info because it is considered to be a problem in some areas. But generally speaking, there's about three varieties that you'll probably find and should be good to plant. The first one is field mustard, also known as canola, which is Brassica rapa. And this is going to attract all kinds of bee species and is a pretty standard one to grow. There's also Chinese mustard, Bee juncia, and black mustard, Bee napis. Mustard acts as a host plant for a number of butterfly species, including large marble, large white, checkered white, becker's white, and the Pacific orange tip. Let's move on to sweet clover, which is considered one of the very best nectar plants. It likes full sun. It blooms late spring to summer. It has a maximum height of about five foot, and the flower color is white and yellow. You're looking at weedy annuals, or biennial varieties, and it's a kind of legume. It is very adaptable, and it's easy to establish. It's going to do best on dry soil. The honey from sweet clover is white or greenish-yellow, and some people say the taste has hints of vanilla or even cinnamon. According to the Xerxes book, there's an average of 200 pounds of surplus honey per hive when placed by sweet clover fields. And the average sugar concentration of the nectar is 48 to 52%. Now, a key point to make about sweet clover is that there are some concerns about its invasiveness. And because of this, the Xerxes Society does not recommend planting it near natural areas. So if you have your property and it goes right up against some kind of natural area or state park or something like that, please don't plant up against those borders. There's a couple of different recommended varieties but the yellow sweet clover Melilotus officinalis is the most readily available. There's also a Hubam variety of the white flowered species which is M. alba and this is a great honey plant for mass planting especially in warmer areas so maybe some of our southern farmers. Now white sweet clover nectar The flow usually starts about two weeks after the yellow variety. So if you could plant both, that might be a good idea. Sweet Clover attracts honeybees, a huge diversity of native bees, all kinds of beneficial insects, butterflies and wasps. It acts as a host plant for caterpillars of the following butterfly species, the orange sulfur, the western sulfur, the eastern-tailed blue, the reoccurts blue and the silvery blue. Now, the final pasture plant that I'm gonna mention today is vetch, which is just hugely fun to say and part of why I included it. (laughs) Now, vetch likes full sun to partial shade. It blooms in spring through summer and the flower color is purple and pink. It has a maximum height of three foot and it's a valuable cover, fodder, forage and green manure crop, so it basically does it all. Vetch is actually closely related to lentils and peas. It reduces soil erosion and is known as a nitrogen fixer. And according to the Xerxes Society, I'm going to quote them here recent research shows that vetch can also remove pollutants from soils and may be used for phytoremediation. So that's pretty interesting. Now vetch can grow quite aggressively and it can become weedy or even invasive in some areas so it's not one of those plants that you can just sow the seeds and leave it alone. You're going to want to watch it and manage it a little bit. It apparently yields a mild white honey and an interesting thing about some vetch varieties is that the flowers can be so deep that the nectar is inaccessible to honeybees but makes it hugely appealing to longer tongued species of bees such as bumblebees and also our beautiful hummingbirds in terms of recommended varieties there are um probably three the first one is american vetch visea americana which is a native perennial and like many things we want our native plants so I do recommend American vetch and then also we have hairy or winter vetch v. villosa which is a non-native annual but also very beneficial. Then there's common vetch v. sativa this is an annual that has extra floral nectaries which support predatory and parasital insects that prey on crop pests so we want those. The only thing to keep in mind with vetch is you want to avoid the invasive crown vetch, the Latin name of which is Segurigera (laughs) varia. I'm going to try that again. Hang on. Segurigera varia is the Latin name, common name crown vetch. We don't want that. It's invasive and it's bad, bad, bad. Now, Good vet <laughs> attracts many different species of bees, including honeybees, bumblebees, leaf cutters, mining bees, and the extremely gorgeous longhorn bee. I'm going to see if I can find a picture for the blog because I saw a picture of this bee and I fell instantly in love. It kind of looks like a bumblebee with a big Thor's, not Thor, what's his name? Loki's helmet, if you've seen the Marvel movies. That's, <laughs> that's what this bee looks like. It's amazing. Uh, Vetch also acts as a host plant for a variety of butterflies and um, these include the Mexican Cloudy Wing, the Funereal Dusky Wing, the Western Sulphur, the Silvery Blue, the Western Tail Blue and the Eastern Tail Blue. So it's a good plant to support our beautiful butterflies. And that's it for this episode, uh, let me check the time Oh my goodness, we're not even at an hour. Absolutely amazing for me. I usually blather on forever. But um I really hope you had fun listening, that you learned something, maybe this helps you. Uh, I'm so appreciative to all my listeners and I love that you're sticking with me and I really hope that you know my genuine enjoyment of this comes through because I I just love this. I it's been so long since I have cultivated vegetable plants, and just reading about them again has really kind of inspired me to make more of an effort this year and to do the best that I can with the time that hopefully the weather is going to give me. Now, as always, you can find me on all the various social media sites. I'm Homestead Hens and Honey on Instagram and Facebook, Homestead Hens on Tumblr and Twitter. And you can email me directly at homesteadhensandhoney, all one word, at gmail.com. Please feel free to send me a note or leave me a comment absolutely any time. I love to hear from you. If you're enjoying my podcast, um, I'd really appreciate it if you would leave me a review on whatever site you use for your podcasts. although everyone keeps telling me that iTunes is going to give me the best exposure so that others can find me and enjoy what I'm discussing. So if you are an iTunes user, please consider leaving me a review. I would greatly appreciate it. For the next episode, like I mentioned before, I have uh, some B information to share which includes the benefits of overwintering nucleus colonies and an introduction to top bar hives. When I went to the Tri-County Beekeepers Workshop last weekend, um, the guest speaker shared just incredible information about um, why overwintering nucleus colonies can be a benefit to all of us, whether we have just a handful of hives or whether we have hundreds of hives. And I had heard of overwintering nucleus colonies before obviously but not in this context and it really blew my mind and the premise of his approach is basically to be self-sustaining to not need to be buying packages every year to be buying nucleus colonies from other people to be buying queens from other people it it really just it blew my mind the amount of information I have so much more reading to do on it but I'm going to give an overview of what he discussed and Again, this is something that will work if you're like me and you're a hobbyist, if you have a big honey production, if you need bees to build cells for you, to, um, if you are a queen producer, if you want to sell nucleus colonies, just so much can be done with this and I'm so excited to discuss it. And then I also had the pleasure of sitting in on a number of talks on top bar hives from a female beekeeper. I am particularly fond of finding other women in beekeeping. Um, It is still primarily a older white male hobby and (laughs) there's nothing wrong with that. But I like to support other women in the hobby. And Christy had a lot of really amazing information. She has a great business and really incredible hives that she actually sells herself as well. So I'm going to share all that with you. And I'm also going to share what I learned about my bees when I was able to go in, more hashtag bee drama, where I am and what I saw and how I changed my plans for this year based on what I'm seeing from my colonies. Now, with all this coronavirus madness, please stay safe out there. It bears repeating that basic hygiene practice is going to see you in good stead. So, this basically means just wash your hands, people, don't touch your face when you're out in public, stay home if you're sick, and as my boss at the zoo likes to say, don't eat poop. Um, I know a lot of people are going crazy right now buying huge amounts of toilet paper and bottled water, but really, the key things to remember is that don't touch common surfaces when you're out in public if you can avoid it if you can't avoid it use hand sanitizer when you wash your hands you want to wash them for over 20 seconds using a good good quality soap it doesn't have to be antibacterial but obviously that doesn't hurt and then also just from someone who washes their hands every day because of all the animals i have and i'm a bit of a germaphobe get a good lotion preferably with some beeswax in it because that's going to give you the best protection Now, my little sign off line seems especially um, apt today, but as always, hug your hands and then wash your hands. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye.